This episode was brought to you by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 135. Hello there, listeners. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and tell you about my ongoing efforts as a writing professional. So, let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part three of my Metamore City novella, Whispers in the Wood. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 133 to hear this story from the beginning. In last week's episode, we saw Abby Preston and Jaina Starson trying to dig up more information about Isaac Wells and the mysterious violin called Threnody. The violin gives people catharsis by singing back to them about the saddest and most traumatic experiences in their lives, letting them know that they are not alone in their suffering. But the Lightbringers have discovered that Threnody's power has a dark side. Over the past several months, a series of mysterious deaths have befallen people who were exposed to Threnody's music. These deaths have consistently happened on the night of the new moon, and the next new moon is now in two days. Abby and Janus need to find out what's causing these deaths before it happens again. Abby interviews Dr. Wells and learns that Threnody isn't a magic violin. There is no enchantment on the instrument. Whatever is causing its mysterious powers, it comes from a source other than mortal magic. Wells also reveals one other secret to Abby. He's dying. Based on the evidence Abby has collected, Janus concludes that Wells is working with a Leonanshi, a powerful species of fairy. Leonanshi pledge themselves as patrons to talented artists, helping them to produce works of extraordinary power and beauty. But they also feed on their hosts drinking their blood, and sapping their life force. But it doesn't make sense for Elaine to kill people who are fans of Threnody's music. Janus asks Abby to try to make contact with the fairy, to see if they can find out why these people are dying, and whether the fairy can be persuaded to stop it. Abby uses her lucid dreaming talent to enter the spirit plane, the realm of dreams and ghosts that sits between the waking world and the realms beyond. She goes to the boarding house where Wells is sleeping, and there she finds a cloud of living darkness swirling around the violin. The shadows answer Abby when she speaks to them, demanding to know why she is there. Abby states her business, and the Leonanshi appears. The fairy agrees to answer three of Abby's questions, but first Abby must give her a song in payment. Abby sings her a childhood lullaby she had learned from her mother, but as soon as she's done singing it, the song vanishes from her mind, and she can no longer remember a single note or word of it. The Leonanshi lets out a satisfied sigh, and tells Abby to ask her questions. Abby is terrified. Though she is one of the most powerful telepaths that Metamore has ever seen, this creature took her mother's song from her so quickly that Abby didn't even feel it happening. For the first time, Abby realizes how dangerous fairies actually are. 
she will choose her questions very, very carefully. Whispers in the Wood A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Part 3 Janus came into the Ops Center at Lothanasi HQ, his hair still damp from his post-patrol shower. That was driven by necessity, not vanity. His uniform repelled blood, ichor, and most of the other byproducts of his work on the street, but his skin and hair were not so fortunate. Candace was still working at the main control console, a cup of tea steaming beside her. The two-story holographic display in front of her showed location tracking and vital signs for each of the Lightbringer agents currently on patrol in the city. Three supplementary displays were filled with background data of one kind or another. It's late. Janus said, coming up behind her. You should be in bed. Candace shot him a look over her shoulder, her hazel eyes sparkling with wry amusement. You're one to talk. Jillian's out sick tonight, so I'm taking half her shift and Kyle's taking the other. Janus frowned. No one told me about that. Because, oh fearless leader, you have more important things to worry about, Candace said. She spun her chair around and put a gentle hand on his arm. You take care of the monsters, I take care of keeping the place running. It's a good system, don't mess with it. Janus gave her a small nod and a brief smile. All right. Candace's hand lingered where it touched him, and he found that he felt no desire to pull away. He wasn't sure what he did want, though, and Candace did not risk impropriety by taking things further. The moment lasted long enough to be awkward, until finally she cleared her throat and turned back to the computer terminal. <clears throat> Here's something you'll want to see. Research Division dug up some more information on the Wells case. Ah, excellent, Janus said, relieved at the shift back to business. Did they find any possible motive for the deaths? Some of them, maybe. Candace called up records on the fifteen victims and spread them out over the display in front of them. One of them is the prior owner of the violin. He got himself into some financial trouble and had to pawn the instrument to get out of it. He died of a brain aneurysm two weeks later, on the night of the new moon. She smirked. I guess Threnody has abandonment issues. Had Wells purchased the violin by then? Janus asked. No, he's in the clear on that one. It was another month and a half before the loan came due and the pawnbroker put it up for sale. Wells bought it a month after that. Janus grunted. Were there any other deaths in the intervening months, between when it was pawned and when Wells began using it? Not that we've been able to tie to the case. And before you ask, neither the previous owner nor anyone in his family was known for having much musical talent. No virtuosos here. Which means it's not very likely that the Leonanshi would have been interested in them, Janus said, following her train of thought. Puzzling, but good work. What else do you have? Four of the dead had police records for theft, burglary, or assault. They probably saw Threnody in concert and thought they could steal the magic fiddle for themselves. Janus almost felt satisfied at that. Cause of death? Three of them due to blood loss from severed arteries. One due to having his head removed. Candace looked up at him grimly. Remind me to never get on Elaine Anshi's bad side. I hope we can avoid it. 
Janus said, in all honesty. Any others? Three of them were wealthy individuals who tried to buy the violin. There may have been more, but those are the ones we know about. Wells turned them all down, but maybe Threnody still felt threatened. Candace shrugged. The rest were just fans of the music, as far as we can tell. They came to repeat showings and talked to a lot of their friends about what was happening at the concerts. At least some of them offered to sleep with Wells, but so far we haven't heard of him actually accepting for many of them. Janus nodded thoughtfully. And these... fans... they were all women? Yep. Looks like Abby may have been onto something with the jealous lover thing. Janus sank into the seat next to her, grumbling. It still doesn't add up, he said irritably. Why on earth would a Leonanche be threatened by a bunch of... groupies? Candace suggested. Janus gestured to her, accepting the term. I wondered about that too, which is why I'm working with Research Division to dig into the history of that violin before it went to the pawn shop. Hopefully we'll turn up something that explains how Threnody works, and why she's got such a thing against Wells getting laid. Janus stared at her a moment, then grinned. Whatever we're paying you, it isn't enough. Candace smiled back at him. I'll be sure to give myself a raise on our next budget cycle. Now go get some sleep and let me work. As he rode the lift up to his quarters, Janus thought about their bizarre findings on the Wells case. He couldn't believe that the fairy would kill all those women simply because they had showed so much interest in Wells and his violin. If anything, the she should have been thanking them for spreading the word about her chosen one. Instead, they had died. After showing a stronger-than-normal interest in Wells and Threnody. Just as Abby Preston was doing right now. Janus stopped the lift and pushed the button for the garage. It might be nothing, but an intuition was taking shape at the back of his mind, and he had learned that it was wise to listen to those impressions. He would stop by Preston's hotel room to check on her, one last time before daylight. You couldn't be too careful when you were dealing with fairies. The fairy left her alone for an hour to consider her questions, for which Abby was grateful. She returned to her physical body and puzzled over possible questions on a sheet of hotel paper. With only three of them, she didn't want to waste any, especially given what they had cost her. Some questions she was able to discard immediately. She would not ask if the Leonanshi was helping to keep Wells alive. It was the only thing that made sense given that he had lasted this long without any apparent medical treatment. Granted, she was also sucking out his life force, and something had happened last night that had aged him a great deal, but that look at Wells's aura told Abby that he was probably going to live longer with the fairy than without her. She also would not ask why the fey woman had chosen Wells, or why she chose to heal people through his music. If Janus was correct— and all fairies were insane by human standards, then her reasoning might not make any sense to Abby anyway. Abby decided that she and Janus really needed to know four things. Whether the violin's power was inherently harmful, why Threnody was killing people, whether Wells was complicit in the killings, and whether she could be persuaded to stop. On further reflection, she added a fifth item— they needed to know whether Threnody was responsible for all the deaths that had been attributed to her. The Leonanshi was undoubtedly dangerous, 
but it was just possible that she wasn't actually guilty of this particular set of crimes, and Abby wasn't the least bit interested in picking a fight with the creature if she didn't have to. She couldn't ask everything she needed to, but in the end, she decided on a strategy to get as much information out of the fairy as possible. She dreamwalked back to Wells' flat and found the Leonanchi waiting for her. She was reclining on an elaborately carved settee that would have fit in well with the lower parts of the mansion, but which looked odd and out of place among the children's toys. Have you chosen your questions, mortal? she asked. Yes, milady, Abby said, bowing low. The Leonanchi gestured expansively. Ask, then, and I shall answer. My first question. When Dr. Wells plays the violin, it seems to echo people's pain. But the violin isn't magical. How does that work? The Fay woman seemed surprised by the question, but also pleased. It put Abby in mind of a professor being asked to expound upon her area of research. The violin sings the pain of lost souls. In the maestro's hands, under my tutelage, it can call forth the sorrows of the dead. The anguish of the living heart resonates in sympathy with the song, so you perceive the sorrow as your own. Abby nodded thoughtfully. There were a lot of follow-up questions she could ask about that, but she had too much other ground to cover. Second question. I would like to know which people you have killed in the last year of mortal time, and why you killed them. The she's lips parted in a sharp-toothed smile. Those could be considered two separate questions, child. But very well. The song you gave me was sweet, and so I shall not quibble. Abby sighed in relief. After a moment's thought, the fairy spoke again, idly, as if running through a list that bore very little interest to her. Let me see. Two men I killed when they laid their hands upon my maestro in a violent and unseemly manner. One I slew for threatening him with a... a pistol, I believe they are called. Is that the word? Abby nodded. A fourth was a thief. He entered the maestro's home on a moonless night and would have stolen his instrument. I killed him quietly, so my beloved would not be wakened. The fifth and sixth were a pair of lutins who sought to force themselves upon a young woman I had heard singing once in a choir. I happened to be passing by and recognized her voice, and so I rescued her. The seventh and last was my former beloved, a painter from the land of Torn. His heart failed as I rode him to the heights of pleasure. She sighed fondly. <sighs> With his last breath he called my name in ecstasy. I miss him still. Abby shivered, which was unusual in dream form. Still, the list was shorter than she had expected. Thinking back through the fairy's account, only four of her kills had anything to do with Wells. None of the deaths could be considered unjustified, except for the painters, and he'd chosen that fate himself. That left eleven names on Janus's list. Third question. There were other people who died after hearing Dr. Wells play, always on the night of the new moon. If you didn't kill those people, who did? The fairy rose from her couch, her face darkening. Abby took an involuntary step back. The settee vanished in a flash of light as soon as the fay woman left it. If I did not kill them, she said, her voice cold, 
I do not appreciate you questioning my word, mortal. I am Fay, and the Fay do not lie. Abby fell to her knees, her heart quailing. Forgive me, my lady, she said, her voice shaking. It is only a human figure of speech. I did not mean to give offense. The Leonanshi's eyes burned into her for a long moment. Very well, she said. It is forgiven. As to your answer, the others you speak of were slain by Threnody. Abby stared at her in confusion. But, wait, you mean you're not Threnody? The fairy let out a derisive snort. Three questions you have asked of me, mortal, and three have I answered. Unless you give me your name in payment, I shall answer no more. A gust of wind blew through the room, and the fairy vanished in the blink of an eye. Abby turned and looked at the corner of the room where the violin sat, still surrounded by living shadows. Threnody killed them, Abby murmured. She stepped a few paces closer to the instrument, then looked back over her shoulder at the spot where the fay woman had vanished. But if she's not Threnody... She looked back at the violin. Threnody? she asked. A chorus of whispers answered her. Again, most of them were indistinct, but one rose out more clearly among the others. So we have been named. We, Abby said, mostly to herself. But who's we? A low hiss came from the shadows around the violin. Nosy girl, nosy, nosy. The shadows grew, flowing up the walls and across them, until they formed a broad barricade that blocked the door. Too many questions. Abby took a step back, then another, as the shadows grew to surround her on three sides. Red eyes burned in the darkness, and white light glinted off of what might have been teeth. She was frightened, but not nearly as much as when she had faced the Leonanshi. She kept her wits about her and opened her third eye, sending a blast of soul light directly into the wall of shadows. The creature screamed and shrank back, and Abby bolted through the now exposed door. She ran as fast as thought could carry her, out through a mansion that rattled and shook around her. The sound of claws scrabbling against floors and the crash of broken china came from behind her. The front doors opened before her, and she raced across the skyway and back to the hotel. The shades bolted for cover as she approached, and from the expressions on their faces, she knew that the thing was still following her. Faster and faster she ran, desperation driving her onward. The touch of ice licked at her heels. Hisses and snarls came from somewhere close behind her ears. Up the stairs, three at a time, as they rattled and shook with the great weight of the thing that pursued her. Now at the door to her room, she burst through and dove for her sleeping body, dimly aware of the bright lights that filled the space, and the man waiting beside her with a flaming sword in hand. Abby sat bolt upright on the bed, gasping for breath. Janus was there at the doorway, his holy symbol in one hand and the lemisil in the other. Light poured forth from blade and twin cross alike, as a wispy and insubstantial mass of dark fog tried to push its way inside. I'll tell ye, Janus shouted, swinging a lemisil in a broad arc. 
The fog parted where he touched it, and Abby heard a shriek of pain in her mind. Otalia, you morari! The shadow fled, backing away into the hall and then evaporating. The elven runes that had been glowing red died down to orange, then yellow, then nothing. Janus closed the hotel room door and drew a sign of warding over it. The lines glowed blue-white for a moment, then faded into invisibility. He turned to face her, and the muscles in his jaw jumped in obvious tension. Get some rest, he said, and this time stay put. We'll talk in the morning. Wordlessly, Abby nodded. She fell back against the pillow and collapsed into a sleep that was, mercifully, dreamless. And that's the end of part three. Come back next week for part four, when Candace's research reveals some important new information about Threnody and its maker, which leaves Janus and Abby with a difficult choice. I don't have a weekly writing report for you this week, because, unfortunately, I didn't get much writing done. I did a few hundred words on Operation Ibex, but this was a really busy week at work, and most of my free time got eaten up with band practice for church. I tried to get some more recording done, but the neighbors were even noisier than usual, so that was sort of a bust. My schedule for next week isn't looking as crazy, though, so I'm going to make a big push to get back on track. The big news for Liminal Corvid Press this week, of course, is The Lost and the Least. The fifth book in the Metamore City series is now on sale at Amazon. The paperback is already available as I record this, and the ebook will be released on Monday, January 15th. As with Things Unseen, the audiobook will run here on the podcast before it's released anywhere else, so stay subscribed and watch for it beginning in late February. And now, the feedback. Judy posted this in the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Chris Lester, I have a question for you. I am listening to Making the Cut again, and am up to the part where Fiona has recalled her suppressed memories. The memory reveals that Egan was the original customer, but Victor was the one who actually killed Fiona's mother. Why are Fiona and Sasha so surprised about Egan being involved, when it appears that Victor's actions would be the bigger betrayal? From events in the story, Fiona and Sasha knew Victor more as opposed to Egan, a character not mentioned prior to this episode. Excellent question, Judy. One minor correction first. We did, in fact, see Egan before this. He was the agent whom Miriam sent to hunt Victor down, and whom Victor led into a trap and killed. The information Victor got from interrogating Egan was used by the Syndicate to target Miriam and capture her. As for why Fee and Sasha react more to the discovery of Egan's involvement, the answer is twofold. Number one, by this time, they already know Victor is a traitor, a murderer, and a sociopath. Discovering that he killed someone in a fit of rage is not exactly surprising news at this point. Also, Victor's act in the flashback was essentially manslaughter, an accident. Egan's act was premeditated and deliberate. Number two, the question Fiona has been grappling with for months at this point is, why can't I remember what happened to my mother? That hole in her mind has been eating at her. Now she finds out why. 
because Egan invaded her mind and put a block on those memories. As Sasha notes in the narration, this is a gruesome, horrifying violation of the telepathic code of ethics that the collective ascribes to. It's a negation of another self, of the sanctity of another's mind. To a telepath's way of thinking, this is a worse crime even than rape or murder. And they have just learned that this obscene act was perpetrated not by Victor, who they already knew was a traitor, but by Egan, who was supposedly loyal to the collective. This shows that the sickness in the collective goes much deeper than they thought, and that the hive was willing to tolerate some abhorrent people in their midst, as long as they believed that they could control them. Thanks for the question. Daniel had this to say about the end of A Lightbringer Carol. Well, just finished listening to the latest episode, and I have to say the whole story was quite good. As a Jew, I admit I always found the whole Christmas Carol story okay, but it felt a little too much a part of the you-have-to-love-Christmas feeling I felt growing up. That being said, I admit I was hesitant with this story, and didn't listen to it at all the first time you had it up. After listening to the whole thing over the past four days, I have to honestly say that I think you did a very great job telling a version of it, without leaning too hard on either Dickens or that feel in the story. I've always had a love-hate relationship toward Janus. I always loved playing a paladin character in D&D, and it was nice to see him humanized like he is in this story, even if I still want to smack some sense into him half the time. Thanks, Daniel. I'm very glad to hear that this story was accessible even for folks who don't observe Christmas. As for Janus, I feel like if you don't want to smack him at least a little bit, then I'm not doing my job of writing him properly. Lawful good he is. Lawful nice? Not so much. Sarah writes, I've been listening to Metamore City for eight or nine years now, and trying to get everyone I know to listen as well. A couple of weeks ago, I played a Wizard Family Solstice for my mom during a short road trip. When we got home, I put Making the Cut on her phone for her to listen to at work. She's already finished and working her way through things unseen. She listens every chance she gets, and just a few minutes ago, she told me I had created a monster. Smiley face. Thank you, Chris, for producing such a fantastic podcast. Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for spreading the word. I'm really glad your mom liked the stories. Be sure to let her know that The Lost and the Least starts airing on here soon. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2009 and 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. 
The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.